I'm Steve from Maryland. Always happy to meet new people and give accommodation advice while warming my buttocks by the fire. And I'm Al from New Zealand, who was once a tourist in Transylvania and also found himself hanging upside down. But that was from disastrous incompetence on a ski field and not an unholy ritual to resurrect a vampire. We are Hammerama the podcast about Hammer Horror, which happily accepts free coach rides and meals in abandoned castles without ever getting hung up about it. Our opening music is the wonderful theme from House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reber Clark. And our film for discussion this month, seeing us resuming our count through Hammer's Dracula cycle with 1966's Dracula, Prince of Darkness. At this lonely crossroad in the Carpathian Mountains, four travelers find themselves abandoned at nightfall by a local coach driver who was afraid to go any further. There's no driver. A coach with horses that knew the way, a table laid for four. Was this kindly hospitality? Isn't your master joining us for dinner? No, sir. I'm afraid not. Is he indisposed? He's dead. Why should a dead man be interested in entertaining guests? Dracula, Prince of Darkness, King of the Vampires. For ten years, his mortal remains were cherished by his faithful servant, awaiting the opportunity and a victim to provide the life force for the reincarnation of Dracula. A strange premonition warns the guests at Castle Dracula that their host is ready to receive them. I must kill him. He is already dead. He is undead, Mr. Kent. He can be destroyed, but not killed. Where's Charles? You don't need Charles. Two married couples from England, Alan and Helen, played by Charles Tingwell and Barbara Shelley, and Charles and Diana, Francis Matthews and Suzanne Farmer, are touring Eastern Europe in the late 18th century, but soon discover that the ultimate cost of a night's accommodation can leave you feeling drained and eventually shafted. While the four tourists take shelter at picturesque Castle Dracula, the sinister clove, Philip Latham, murders Alan and uses his blood to revive the Count, who wastes no time in busting out his signature moves and vampirizing Helen. Charles and Diana manage to escape and seek refuge with the abbot of Kleinberg, Father Shandor, played by future Quatermass, Andrew Keir. But when Diana is abducted by the Prince of Darkness and his servant, our heroes have no choice but to face the Count on his home ground and strive to bring an end to his resurrected evil. 
But will Charles survive his near miss with a moti bite? Can Diana make her count shot? Is Father Shandor willing to prioritize helping them above his usual monkey business? And will the Count have one final crack at victory? Or will the ice have it and leave him with badly frozen assets? Discover the answers to these questions which no one is asking in Dracula, Puns of Darkness. Yes, puns of darkness, puns that should be done in darkness. <laughs> And silence. <laughs> no, no, no. I love the puns. I love the puns. Keep them coming. I think I can manage to do that, sure. <laughs> so, Steve, I'm dying to hear what your initial thoughts about this wonderful movie might be. Well, this is a movie I haven't seen in a few decades. So it brought back some you know, fond memories. I enjoyed it. it. It always throws me off a little bit when I watch this one because Peter Cushing has a archive footage cameo in it. And then that's all the Cushing you get. And mm. usually when you think of Christopher Lee, you think of Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. So it's it's kind of interesting that the movie that we did not cover, that we skipped over because Dracula was not in it, Brides of Dracula, had Cushing and no mm -hmm. Lee. And here the next movie has Lee. But really, without the archive footage, no Cushing. And as you brought up with the Quatermass line and Father Shandor, I think his bloodline is what led to Quatermass and Quatermass in the pit in my headcanon. Oh, I like that. Because, yeah. you know, he comes off that way. The character of both of them are, are roughly the same. You're taking over my connection segment and doing a better job than I am. I, I really like that. Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear how you go about doing it, but mm. I find it fascinating. It's just a great opening scene where you got the young girl being carried by the people that are going to put a stake in her and then bury her because they think that the, the vampire curse is still there because she died so young and the mother doesn't want it to happen. And then all of a sudden, the rifle shot. You look up and there he is. Father Shandor <laughs> on the horse and stuff like that. Like, what are you doing? You know, and going after and, and telling them like, you idiots. And and double down and on the, on the one priest and calling him a double, basically a double idiot. And I love that scene. It's a boss entrance. And maybe he's calling the priest a double dumbass like uh, Kirk did in, uh, in Star Trek Four. <laughs> There's another connection. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. You get the scene where they're all in the tavern and then Father Shandor shows up to you know, warm his buttocks at the fire. He's, I mean, he's just this person who, who knows who he is, is totally comfortable in his skin. What's particularly lovely about that scene is you watch Barbara Shelley's character's facial expression when he lifts up his cassock at the back. It's a really wonderful bit of silent acting because she is absolutely horrified. Oh, and of course, Barbara Shelley. I mean, what can you say about her? I, I wish that she would have been in mm. more Hammer movies. Agreed. But I enjoyed the movie, how Dracula rehydrates himself in an interesting format. <laughs> he was the Tang yeah. before Tang. <laughs> he was. Clove just needed a giant teaspoon and um, we would have been fine. Exactly. <laughs> My first thoughts would be, most people will tell you that they really only start to enjoy this film once the count is up and about. And I can relate to that, but personally, I think I prefer the long, slow build-up to his appearance. This is a slasher done right, with time taken to get to know the four victims and understand their motivations and how they relate to each other. 
And this investment makes Barbara Shelley's startling transformation from uptight killjoy to seductive and ravening vampiress really pay off, as does Diana's evolution from the helpless abductee to sharp-shooting badass who saves her man. We also see Charles grow up, which he kind of really needed to, and become a more responsible and likable character under Shandor Quatermass's guidance. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's his name. <laughs> Clove makes a brilliantly um, creepy stand-in for his absent master, and the camera prowling about the beautifully lit corridors of Castle Dracula makes its owner's presence felt without him actually being there yet. So about that halfway mark, the film transforms into an adventure yarn, which really lets up after the Count finally appears. But personally, yeah, I think I really, really enjoy the nice, slow, creeping build-up before that happens. I think you and I both have that in common, where we like the slow build-ups, as long as they have the characters being developed, and you get that full relationships with them, so that way when things go awry, mm. you have more of an emotional investment. If you're the one that wants to see things happen right away... As Al said, mm -hmm. that first half of the movie is going to be a little off-putting for you. Yeah, I think it really helps that, as I say, our four characters are so well-drawn. And, of course, you have Father Shandor, who always keeps things interesting until, until the count appears. I'm going to go straight on to my favorite scene. Go for it, because I'm going to go to mine after yours. <laughs> All right. I might be stealing yours, Steve. I hope I'm not. But my favorite is... Deep down inside, you really are hoping you you are. <laughs> yeah, well, it's about time. You've got to, to know what it feels like. <laughs> For me, it's got to be the Count's resurrection during a late night thunderstorm, which we've just had here, in fact, from the slow, deliberate preparations which Clove silently makes climaxing with the most disturbing sound effect ever when he slashes the suspended Alan's throat to release a cascade of Kensington gore. And then the eye-popping visual effects sequence of Dracula's body reconstituting from a scattering of scarlet ashes. It's the first and possibly best example of this very familiar plot point in a Hammer Dracula film. And the effects and music combine to make you feel as if you are watching something genuinely blasphemous and evil. And it's actually pretty horrifying. And I think that anyone who has struggled with the first part of the film up to this point will probably suddenly be sitting bolt upright, but really is a pretty staggering scene. It is a good scene, and it's, it's, it, it was not the one I picked, but I do oh, enjoy good. it. I have, I have a couple, two favorite scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one we already talked about a little bit, and that is the the tavern room scene mm. with Barbara Shelley as Helen Kent, how she reacted to different things going on with the father. She was also doing that with other people, too, and how yes, it's just like, oh, yes. this is so improper. You know, not, yeah. This would not happen if we were in England, you know, and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> and you got the whole backstory from how she is just the killjoy to take on vacation. I mean, it's just the whole time thinking, oh, it'd be so much nicer if we are in our bed, you know, the one nice there. And all the food would be so much nicer at the restaurants near home. And you, know, you could just imagine day after day. I mean, this, this trip's probably going on for at least a month, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. and no wonder Charles Kent's characters like get rounds on everybody, let's drink some more. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably yeah, had he enough. Yeah, he probably needed it. <laughs> 
and, and you also develop how he, he didn't get as much time, but Charles Tingwell's was shown like he's always got his little pouch that he pulls mm. out with his, the program. So he's one of those that he's made the plans. This is what we're supposed to do on this vacation. And, and him and his wife are that way. They're planners. Yes. And then you have Charles and Diana who are the, there's a chance we can go for this other adventure. So you have these mm-hmm. two different types of personalities being portrayed. Yeah. So I thought that all that put together was just a great way to develop everything and get it set up. And you have Father Sandor showing up to add that comedy. What strikes me about him is that, as you've mentioned, we didn't get Peter Cushing, we didn't get Van Helsing in this film. But a bit like casting Doctor Who, when you have a new actor in that kind of role, you go for the biggest contrast that you can possibly have. And I think Shandor is definitely a strong contrast to Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. And in many ways, they work equally well and they get to stand on their own merits. So, yeah, I think that was perfect casting and and excellent writing. And and not just... Way their characters are developed, but just in the physicality of them. The other scene I really enjoyed was mm-hmm. the one involving um, Diana. She's the one that got him out of the castle mm-hmm. because her sister-in-law was coming to attack her when she's in vampire form, Barbara Shelley, yeah. and yeah. her crucifix hits the arm and she recoils and she sees the brandy. She puts it together like mm. boom. Oh, this is what's stopping him. She holds it up. It puts her at bay. And she holds it at the count, and it puts him at bay. And then, of course, you have Charles figure out, like, oh, this is what's working, and he does the same thing. They would have both been killed right yeah. then and there if it wasn't yeah. for Diana. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I, so I really appreciate that scene because you can just see it's all silent, you know, going on, how they all figure that out. She doesn't have to say anything. He figures it out, and then they, and of course, Clove tries to sneak up behind him and do the move that he did on the brother earlier in the movie. She sees him, gives the appropriate scream, he reacts and bang, they stop Clove and they get out of there. I do have to say that Clove's next performance review with the Count (laughs) wouldn't go well for him. He had everything going for him. He should have been able to take out Charles easily by sneaking up behind him, but he completely failed. So as I say, I think Dracula would have a few, well, he doesn't speak in this film, but if he did, he'd have a few stern words about uh, about Clove doing his job properly. Well, he could have drugged the food and made it all easy for him on the first night. Well, he could, couldn't he? <laughs> That's a very good point. And I like how you keep pointing out that the Hammer heroines actually are a lot more proactive than a lot of people give them credit for. My second scene, I think, sets up her doing what she did in the, in the end. He's like, oh, there's nothing we can do. She's like, oh, just give me the rifle. <laughs> I'll take care of this myself. And she absolutely does. And uh, now I'm going to surprise you with my second scene because I thought Steve's probably going to have two. So I'm going to have a backup. And once again, I'm surprised that this one hasn't been brought up already. But we're obviously enjoying different things about this film, which is great. My second scene is Helen's staking. Um, Helen's stakeout. <laughs> this is a brilliant... This is a brilliant physical performance from Barbara Shelley because you watch it, she's making the actors playing the monks who are trying to restrain her work really, really hard uh, just to hold on to her. And she must have been utterly exhausted afterwards because as we know, she managed to swallow a fang during her exertions. But apparently she also thoroughly enjoyed this role. But even as a feral vampiress, Barbara Shelley is such a lovable screen presence 
reasons that you can't help but really feel sympathy for her. And let's be honest, this scene reeks of powerful and uncomfortable symbolism. We have a newly liberated and powerful woman literally held down by the religious patriarchy who ritually violate her body in a penetrative assault. It's very strong imagery which I think most viewers can't help but perceive on some kind of level. It was actually interesting you brought that up because I could see exactly what you're talking about and everything. Yes, she was liberated, but she was liberated into becoming a creature that's a predator that's trying to kill. So it's not mm. like she was being liberated in a good way, changed into something that was more less than human. But I can yeah. see what you're saying because the, the way they're holding her is basically yeah. the, the Christ pose when they're like holding her legs or arms. When I look at the person that Helen was and then seeing her as a vampirist, I know that the narrative of the film is really, really clear. But you also wonder, I don't know, would Helen maybe enjoy the freedom and liberation of being the beautiful creature that she becomes after she's spent her life being so buttoned up and... Uh, repressed. The Helen before she was turned by the Count struck me as someone who didn't really seem to enjoy life particularly. I mean you can look at it that way and actually that ties in with the horror of Dracula. Melissa Stripling's character was the same way where she was repressed but then when she had a, <clears throat> a night out with the Count <laughs> she came back with mm. a much more uh, yeah. um, <laughs> much happier. With a smile yeah, on her with face. With a smile on her face <laughs> that, that would last for a long time. Indeed. Yeah, isn't it interesting that, that there are deeper themes here than you might first think? And these are the reasons why I prefer the Dracula cycle to the Frankenstein cycle. I just find the more sensual aspects of the Dracula films, the vampire genre, I find that personally much more fascinating than the body horror of the Frankenstein cycle. But of course, you also have Peter Cushing with the Frankenstein films, so it's still a hard decision to make. Are you ready to talk about the poster, Steve? Ah, the poster. Yes, yes. Mm. <clears throat> I love the, the Dracula Prince of Darkness font you know, that they use. Mm. And with the blood dripping down from it with the red, it definitely invokes a Dracula movie. I mean, that by itself would let you know exactly what you're in for. And then you have the images. Mm. Christopher Lee is back because in the prior movie, they did not have Christopher Lee in it. So you want to show it prominently. Christopher Lee is back as Dracula. Boom. Yeah. With the light going up, mm -hmm. you know, giving him that, um, you know, like a lot of people, like as kids, where we always held the flashlight or whatever underneath our face to give us a spooky look. Where's my chick? <laughs> and of course, below Dracula Prince of Darkness, we have two different um, screen images. We have um, the one with Dracula attacking Barbara Shelley's character or holding mm -hmm. her, so that, which happened in the movie. And then, of course, the exact scene that you brought up your, as your second yeah. favorite with the, the priest um, basically taking care of Barbara Shelley's vampiric character. So the image is there. Mm -hmm. It really portrays a lot about what's happening in the movie without really giving anything away. The only thing I could find negative about it really to say is that it's a lot of photos that are blended into the poster where I like more when it's artwork that an artist does on their own. Yeah. But that's me. What do you think? Because you're, you're the expert. 
Well, I'm not an expert. I just draw pictures sometimes. But no, those are all excellent points, Steve. And, and you pretty much ticked off all of my, but I'll go over them from my perspective. Firstly, there's absolutely no doubt that Christopher Lee is now the star of this film. He's no longer having to share billing with Peter Cushing or appear as a secondary character somewhere further down the cast list. But having said that, we get Barbara Shelley twice in the bottom right corner in an unenviable situation both times. And interestingly, this is essentially a photo montage, again, as you mentioned, of two publicity shots and an actual scene from the film, which is Helen's staking. So really the only artwork as such is the lurid, blood-dripping title, which occupies a full third of the poster. The main image is, of course, the lit-from-below portrait of Christopher Lee, and this startling monochrome shot is just stark black with no shading. Back in the day, you used to have to use a special photographic film or a special photographic process to do this. Now it's simply a setting in Photoshop. Just having that stark black with no grey scale, in many ways it's become the definitive representation of Christopher Lee's Count Dracula. This lighting is also known by photographers as monster lighting. And it works well because we almost never see a human face which isn't lit from above. So seeing the lighting come from underneath, it immediately looks disturbing and wrong. And in a happy accident, when you look at that image, you can see that the stark shadows have actually turned Christopher Lee's upper lip into an airborne bat. Or I've always thought so anyway. So this is a poster which powerfully represents the mid-60s visual communication and design approach. In other words, it's using photographic images rather than showcasing the painterly skills of an illustrator. Obviously, as an illustrator, I prefer to see work going to an artist, but I also kind of like that mid-60s photographic approach as well and the amazingly lurid colours that they've used in this poster. So I'm going to talk about merchandise and I'm excited because I actually have some which ties in with this film. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> As we know, Dracula Prince of Darkness was made concurrently with three other productions by Hammer in an experimental cost-cutting exercise to share sets and actors. And this is exactly the kind of well-documented fact that we at Hammerama try not to dwell on because you can read and hear about it in a plethora of excellent books, magazines and other podcasts. So anyway... In 1967, author John Burke novelised all four. The Reptile, Rasputin the Mad Monk, The Plague of the Zombies and Dracula Prince of Darkness in the second Hammer Horror film Omnibus from Pan Books. So the copy I have is a standard paperback novel size with a wonderful wraparound cover painting combining all four films by a sadly uncredited artist. This is exactly what we were just talking about, Steve. This is actually a really beautiful painting taken from easily recognisable images from the four films. So here's an example of how Mr. Burke spices up the prose at the climax. Spoilers. <laughs> The wicked face was thrown back for an instant, the mouth making a last wild appeal to a thousand guardian demons. Then the water closed over it. The dark cloak swirled on the surface like a somber lily until it too 
was drowned. And yes, he does correctly refer to our hunky monk throughout as Father Shandor. So at this point, we should probably make a note about this, Steve. Everyone in the film, including the father himself, pronounces his name Shandor. But it is spelt Sandor in the film's credits. And in most sources that I've ever read, they also refer to him as Father Sandor. But we've agreed that we are going to go with the form that is used and spoken by the characters in the film. So we're going with Father Shandor. And listeners, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to get used to it. I think they have by now. (laughs) Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Unless they've turned off in disgust. (laughs) Well, this this is what I'm going with. This this is my headcanon now. So there's Father Shandor had a sister who married a man whose last name was Quatermass. And that's how the Quatermass, down the generations, and of course, Quatermass became a professor and then found the pit and met Barbara Shelley again. <laughs> if I ever do volume two of InfoGothic, I'm going to do a family tree and we'll see, we'll see how that uh, comes together. I'm sure in that tree you can probably find a way to tie it all the way back to one million years BC. I could see it all working <laughs> out. <laughs> because, of course, Andrew Kerr also played a, a Roman officer in... I think you're thinking of the, the Viking Queen. Thank you very much, the Viking Queen, yes. So that's another historical character who was played by Andrew Kerr. So I'm sure we can we can get him into the into the family tree as well. Have you got a merchandise pick? I sadly do not have a merchandise pick this time. But I, I can't top my Dracula socks that I talked about with Dracula itself. Well, you probably can't. Which are real. You probably can't. Look, Steve, feel free. While you're warming your buttocks by the fire, feel free to pull on your Dracula socks again. You can kick your feet in the air and that can be your uh, your. <laughs> choice for this movie <laughs> all right well get the heart going now that now that we've strayed into this territory i'm going to quickly veer into connections now steve you've already had a damn good go at this but it's probably going to be better than mine so horror of dracula is in the unique position of being a hammer horror film with two direct sequels we follow both the protagonist and the antagonist in their own subsequent films Peter Cushing's Van Helsing in Brides of Dracula, which took place, or rather was released two years after his debut, and the Count himself reappears in this film a full eight years after the release of Horror of Dracula. A flashback to Horror of Dracula solidly establishes this as a direct continuation, and then the Count's reconstitution just add blood and mix shots for 30 seconds establishes a trope to follow in all other hammer dracula films bar the final two conversely the other hammer tradition solidly adhered to in this film is an inventive and spectacular method of demise for the count at the film's climax although this is the only time that his body isn't visibly destroyed and reduced to ash so although we never got to see father shandor on screen again the gun-toting abbot was to have an unexpected career as a comic book superhero did you know about this no no tell me more This is something that really fascinated me. Through a deal brokered by Hammer's then script editor Christopher Wicking, publisher Des Skin launched House of Hammer magazine in 1976, which included a semi-regular comic strip 
Father Shandor, Demon Stalker. Now the Good Father even gained mysterious superpowers during his battles with supernatural evil and went on to continue his adventures in the British comic Warrior from 1982 to 1985. And to date his last appearance was in the anthology graphic novel series A1 in 1990. So for all those years we've had Father Shandor <laughs> as a comic book superhero. It seems that having helped take down Dracula on your CV can really open doors for you. I'm right now wanting to see in a comic book form, in a graphic novel form, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, Father Shandor teams up with Captain Kronos. I have more than thought about this. I've actually made a film poster and I think we'll put this on our Facebook page. Well, what can you say? It's just when, you, when you tell me that comic book format and I have the Captain Chronos graphic novel comic book that came out a few years back. And, yes. Uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful because it continues on with all the characters and stuff like that. So yeah. Your pick of Shandor and Kronos is actually an, a really good one because, as we know, Kronos was originally intended to be able to travel in time. And as far as I know, the Father Shandor comic book character traveled between dimensions, believe it or not. So presumably there was a little bit of time travel involved there as well. So I think these two characters would probably be the best suited. We need them to team up with the Doctor. And then we have we have the trifecta right there. It's just And then we <laughs> certainly do. We certainly do. Done and dusted. But anyway, Steve, we're actually at final thoughts. And it's your turn. Overall, I've, I like I said, I've enjoyed the movie and I love the slow burns, but there is one thing that's always made me wonder. And that is all throughout the movie you don't get an idea what time of year it is, like what season of the year. It looks mm. like it's fall, but suddenly at the very end, it must be winter because of the ice frozen over the moat. But yet nobody's really ever dressed for the extreme, extreme cold. Now there is the time when Father mm. Shandor comes in to warm his buttocks, but <laughs> so it makes me think it's cold, but is it cold enough to have ice that's inches thick mm -hmm. that, that people can walk on it. It could have been a budgetary thing where they couldn't show fake snow. It's the only like a little nitpick I find with it where you see um, Christopher Reeve. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to see that. <laughs> Christopher Lee. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I'm leaving this in, sorry. <laughs> uh, with Christopher Lee taking the deep freeze, which puts him in suspended animation so he can come back in the next movie, It because it works so well. I enjoyed the characterization. I enjoyed everything else that we've already mentioned so far. I'm About the, the ice, I can think of two explanations. One of them is real world, and one of them is um, need to get out more fan <laughs> headcanon. The first one is that, of course... Um, <laughs> 
The sets were shared with Rasputin, the mad monk, which was set in wintry Russia. And so they, they had a frozen moat all ready to go. And the in-universe explanation that I can think of is that Dracula's malign presence is so powerful that the air temperature surrounding the castle drops to such an extent that it freezes water. So there you go. Because if I remember right, 1958's Dracula, I don't, don't they comment once or twice about when they crossed the threshold of the outer property of the castle mm. that it's colder yeah 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 it's that colder area. and there's and there's no bird song yep yeah so that so i'm helping you out it ties in it yeah. ties in <laughs> yeah there you go done and let's quickly move on before anyone has time to think about it my final thoughts to the best of my knowledge few people will ever name prince of darkness as their favorite hammer dracula film and it's not that it's disliked like some other entries in the cycle ahem, scars it's just not loved as much as the others it doesn't have the novelty of being the first, or the fresh visual style of Risen from the Grave, or even the physical relocation of Taste the Blood. And it definitely doesn't have the wild reinvention of the final three films. So in many ways, Prince of Darkness is the most vanilla, the type O positive of the Hammer Dracula films. Prince of Darkness sets the template for all the sequels to come. A thankless but essential function However, it also gives us barnstorming performances from Andrew Keir and Barbara Shelley, who we've talked a lot about. And this alone should elevate this film much higher in Hammer fans' estimations. But like the Count himself, they seem to remain largely silent about it. And I think that's a real pity. I think so too. And so while we're talking about Hammer films, which might be unexpected choices... Would you like to talk about our plans for next month, Steve? Next month will be our Christmas special. And technically, loosely, Hammer has produced two Christmas films, or at least stories set during the festive season. From 1961, we have the Christmas Carol-influenced Cash on Demand, starring Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. And we also have the more the most recent Hammer film, supernatural thriller, The Lodge from 2019. And true to our format, the Diecast Movie Podcast fashion, we are going to decide which one we will discuss by the cast of a die. Odd will be Cash on Demand. Even mm -hmm. will be The Lodge. Okay. I'm rolling a six-sided die. Two. So that's even. We're going to the lodge. We're going to the lodge. Listeners, this may not be the most festive Christmas you've ever had. The Lodge is a remarkable film, but it's not what you'd call cheerful. <laughs> so we're, we're just going to have to work hard, Steve, to make it a happy Christmas episode. Well, I've never seen The Lodge, so this will mm. be my first time watching it. I would have been happy with either, but I'm happy with this choice because, of course, as we know, Hammer still lives. And it's not often that you hear their more recent films discussed. So it'll make, a, I think, a really fascinating contrast with movies that we've discussed up until this point. So it'll be interesting to see the special effects differences and mm -hmm. the acting style differences with it because you're talking about a multi-decade differential. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Steve, thank you. It's time to say goodbye. Until next time. Until next time. Al and I will be spending a night at the... 
the lodge. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. 